It is 68 and sunny outside today. Uh, just typical February for, for Nashville. Don't worry, it'll be 30 in a couple of days. Um, I want to be in Matthew 4 with you today. So if you've got a Bible or a phone, go to Matthew 4, and we're going to be uh, wrapping up this whole chapter, verses 13 through 25, Matthew chapter 4. Um, if you are joining us for the first time, like Sean and Bethany maybe, uh, we're, going, we're going through the book of Matthew together, and we started this a little bit before Christmas, kind of as a way of, uh, of jumping in, and, um, and so we're here at the chapter, chapter 4. So t- today's sermon is just going to be a lot, it's going to be different, okay? So I'm, instead of, oh no, that's not good. Uh, my screen's going dark like in 30 seconds, and I don't know how to change that. I, it says two minutes, but it's doing it in 30 seconds. Okay, so today's talk is going to be it's going to be different. Okay, it's it's going to be different. I am I am going to be intentionally a little more low key. Uh, I'm I'm going to Sam. I'm sorry. I'm going to the the, the, <laughs> the Sam appreciates the the emotionally driven Rob more than more than the, the talker Rob. But today's talk is just different, and here's here's why. It's because of what Matthew is doing in this in this chapter, and it's it's the setup. So um, I've several analogies to kind of help. I think what's going on here. So. When I was a in, in, uh, youth pastor at Forest Hills Baptist Church several years ago, I was working on my uh, doctorate in, edu- in education at the same time. And I was getting it from, a de- the, from Louisville, Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. But uh, Vanderbilt University was so kind as to give me a library card that had Robert Timms' Visiting Scholar written on it, which was awesome and so funny because it's not even really that true. But it was, that's what, that, was their, that was their category for people like me who needed to use their, their library. And every day off, Friday and Saturdays for about a year, I was at the Peabody Library in downtown uh, Vanderbilt, downtown Nashville in Vanderbilt. And uh, the topic that I was studying, the original research for this thing was buried in the 1960s and 1970s uh, journal articles. So if you, you know, if you didn't done any research in high school or college, you had to go to these, these journal articles, which are you know, where, where really smart people write articles to themselves. And, um, and for so that students can later read them. Ralph, I'm, I, where's Ralph? Did he, is he walking? To, okay, I'm, please don't take that. that that's, not a, that's not a negative. It may even be very accurate from where you stand, but that's, that's the way I was perceiving it in college. Well, to go through all the articles, you know, you, 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 you're searching in, in all these databases for article after this, and to, you, to get a sense of what's buried deep in these long articles, there's an abstract. That's what you get to do. It's an abstract. You get to read it on the outside. And so by reading the paragraph that's an abstract, you can then decide, this is something I really need to dive deep into and you make a note of it on your scratch pad and you go to the find the book and get the coffee machine and make you know spend hundreds of dollars on the coffee machine at the Vanderbilt library and uh, and so that's that's uh, that's the way I just spent my Friday and Saturday so it's the abstract that let you know what was buried deep within okay Matthew 4 verses 13 through 25 is Matthew's abstract for what's coming in 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. So everything that's in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 and is compressed into Matthew 4, 12 through 25. 
It's an abstract. It's, uh, it's meant to highlight the things that's, that, uh, that, are, that are coming. So it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a transition piece. So if you, if you think back to where Matthew was in verse 1, right? In the first three chapters of his gospel, Matthew is working very hard to establish Jesus' identity as the Messiah. First for the Jew, but also for the Gentiles. So he gives you the genealogy, right? He gives you the genealogy to show that um, everything had been leading up to Jesus. Jesus had already been the plan, generation to generation. And his ancestry is not all Jewish, There are Gentiles in his uh, lineage because they are going to be, Matthew's giving you a key that they're going to play an important part in the the new kingdom, in the the kingdom that he's getting ready to preach about here in in chapter 4. Matthew explains Jesus' name to us. Yeshua is a Hellenized version of the Jewish name Joshua. So he's going to save his people from their sins. That's what it means. But it's also going to be for not just Jews, but it's going to be for Gentiles. Then we get the birth narrative, right? So we get a glimpse of people understanding that from the very beginning, Jesus is going to be a different kind of king. Um, You have Magi, Gentiles, again, coming from the east to worship him. And uh, and, and Jesus' birth narrative also explains just how um, disruptive that Jesus' presence is going to be here. And then in chapter 3, we have the the baptism narrative. And and as Jesus is baptized by John, there's a voice. The barrier between heaven and earth is broken, and God the Father speaks, and He says, This is my Son. So it's identity of Jesus, identity of Jesus, identity of Jesus, over and over again. Matthew 1, 2, and 3. He wants you to understand who Jesus is from the Old Testament to actual experience as he walked this earth. That's what Matthew has been pushing. And that is exactly what Satan tries to go after in verses 4, 1 through 11. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, and he tries to to twist the interpretation of what it means to be Jesus, what it means to be the Son of God. So Matthew has taken all this time just to give us the backstory. He's poured the slab. For those of you that are engineers and want to build a house, Matthew 1 through 4 is the slab. And so the slab has been pulled. And now, verses 12 through 25, the truck is backed up. It's got the roofing framework. It's got the walls on it. And we're just going to take all of it off the truck and see what we got. Okay? That's what we're going to do here in Matthew 4. It's the, big, it's the big picture. It's the who, what, when, why, why and how. And I'm not going to do it all. Because we've got a lot going on. And we've got, a, we've got the rest of the chapters to see it. So I want to hit with you uh, two, two big parts. I want to talk about where Jesus did his ministry because it's a crucial thing to understand for you and I today about how we do ministry. And I want to talk about how Jesus did ministry because it's a really crucial part about how we do ministry as a church today. Okay? So look with me in Matthew chapter 4, uh, verses 12 through 25. The first thing that I want you to see is where Jesus did his ministry. And Jesus did his ministry in a place called Galilee. Look at verses 15 through 16. Well, we'll start at verse 12, but we'll stop at 16. When he heard that John had been arrested, John John the Baptist, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went into Capernaum. This is Galilee by by the sea in the region of Zebulun, and Naphtali. As soon as John's ministry ended, Jesus' ministry picked up right behind him. Why did this happen? Well, Matthew says in verse 14, it was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. 
And here's what prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 9. He said, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road, by the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Underline in your Bible or highlight in your phone uh, the word Galilee of the Gentiles, that phrase there. Because this is where Jesus did his ministry. Do you know what Galil means? It means circuit. It means a, a, a rotation of, of a walk. Like it would be where, so he walked back and forth on this circuit in this area called the Galilee. And Isaiah called it the Galilee of the Gentiles. And Matthew does too. So this was a circuit of 20 cities that, um, uh, uh, what's his name? King, who was the king of Tyre? No, not Neptune. It was Hiram. There it is, Hiram. Hiram, the king of Tyre, gave this to Solomon. Go back in 1 Kings 9, you can see that. And so Galilee was known as the area to the west. Good guess, though. I hope I didn't shut you down too hard. Sorry about that. That's the, that's the Enneagram 3 in me, just jumping right to it. Um, so, um, so, so that's, what's, that's the area. This was, it's west of the Sea of Galilee, if you're looking on a map. Um, at the, when Joshua brought the people into the promised land and their conquest, the two tribes who were put there, as Isaiah highlights, were Zebulun and Naphtali. But if you remember when they took over the land of Canaan, they didn't really like kick everybody out like they were supposed to, the Gentiles. And so even from the very beginning, you had these Gentile people groups that were there. And then later when the Assyrians came and took over um, all of, uh, they, con- they were on a conquest and Israel was completely removed from the area. Um, this is around 700 BC. You had the Assyrians come in. So it's now, a, and they would plant their own people groups in there to disperse the Jewish people group there. So you had this, this it was a very, very Gentile area, even though historically because of Joshua and the conquest of the people, you had two is Jewish tribes there, Naphtali and Zebulun. And over the next seven centuries, this, that wouldn't change. Like from 700 when the Assyrians took over all the way to the time of Jesus, that wouldn't change very much. So by the time Jesus comes on the scene in 30 or so AD, you've got 200,000 people. You've got 20 different small villages, towns, or cities. So it's very populous and it's extremely diverse as far as ethnicity is concerned. It's extremely diverse as far as religiosity is concerned. So, does that surprise you? That, that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was planted to do his earthly ministry for the bulk of his time, not in Jerusalem, but in Zebulun. Not in, not in Jerusalem, but in Naphtali. Not where the Jewish population was the most heavy. Don't get me wrong, there are plenty of Jewish synagogues and all the Jesus is all kind of teaching in synagogues all the time. But in this area, the Jews are the minority. There is no real uh, majority of people. It is that diverse. Jesus does his earthly ministry, the Jewish Messiah, in an environment in which Gentiles rule the day, geographically and ethnically. So this is, this is amazing. She's on Do Not Disturb. I cannot believe how that... Anyway... Anyway, this had Holly, yeah. Okay, Luke, thank you, bud. Thank you. Oh, man. Now, why, why would Jesus do this? Jesus and Siri have very similar names.
Okay. What is Matthew doing? And he's, no, he's doing two things. He's reinforcing the fact that these Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled about him. He's validating his identity again for you. But he doesn't want us to forget. He's done this from the very beginning. He doesn't want us to forget that Jesus is a Jewish Savior who is for all the world. He is, he's a Jewish Savior, but he's the king of the world. He's as Jewish as you can get. But he's the Savior of all the world, including all the Gentiles. And as you go through Matthew, and we'll see this, you're, you're, it's the bulk of his ministry is going to be done in an area that is historically, geographically Jewish, but it's filled with non-Jews from all kinds of places throughout all over the known world. And it just puts a, it, it just puts a place in our heart as a church to, to ask the question, do we need to be more sensitive to the Spirit's lead to be in the lives of people who are less like us? I mean, it's one thing for Jesus to incarnate, to become one of us and be among us as human beings. It is another thing for the Jewish Messiah to do the bulk of his ministry in people groups that, have not, that are not Jewish that are not like, and therefore it presses the point, do we need to be more sensitive to the Spirit's lead for our lives to be embedded in the lives of people who are less like our own? So the trend in our culture is to surround ourselves with people who think and believe like we do. We, I've, we've talked about this before. We now define neighbor not by geographic proximity, but by ideological proximity. Our neighbor is who thinks like us, not who lives next to us. And there are lots of reasons for this. I don't want to get into all that. And I'm not just going to, we can't just lay this at the feet of social media and blame it for making us all tribal. Because the simple fact of the matter is, is that social media just reinforces and exacerbates what's already true about our human nature. Namely, that birds of a feather like to flock together. That's just, it's just true. It's a true about human nature. And Jesus did not operate that way. He was dropped into, he came down intentionally to be a human being, which is amazing in and of itself, and then did the bulk of his ministry among people who did not think like his people, did not live like his people, didn't have the history of his people, and he did his ministry there. Now, Jesus was polarizing. We already saw that with Herod, right? And we're going to go through Matthew. Jesus is going to be a dividing point for a lot of, a lot of people. But Jesus' convictions about truth, Jesus' convictions about how to be right with God, Jesus' conviction and teachings about how to live our lives did not lead him to take a message to a people group that would be super easy for him to get along with. He did not take his message to where he thought it would win easy. He preached and taught in synagogues, yes, and he did his healings in, in these areas, but he did so in a population that was far more Gentile than Jewish. And his crowds, as you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see this, his crowds begin to mirror this reality. So the, the, the practical takeaway here isn't like, okay, I need to go learn a language. So uh, Jonathan and I were in South Florida this weekend visiting a, visiting a college, and... Um, 
we flew into Fort Lauderdale, which is an international airport, and it's an international culture down there. So Spanish was prolific, Cuban in particular, uh, Haitian. I, I could go on and on and on and on. Um, I'm, not, I'm not talking about maybe that could be it. You know, Duolingo could make that very easy or Babbel or some other app like that, just a few minutes a day, but that's not really what I'm getting at. What, what I'm really getting at is are we, we need to be more sensitive to the Spirit's lead to be in the lives of people who are less like our own. I'm talking about being a Christian, being a Christian, which is a polarizing thing, increasingly so. But being a Christian in relationship with people who aren't Christian, which is going to make you less tribal as a result. So think of it this way. Jesus was as as Jesus-like as you can get. And Jesus chose the Galilee of the Gentiles to do his ministry. So being as Jesus-like as we can be, I don't think that's going to mean birds of a feather flock together. I think it's going to mean meaningful relationships, bringing the gospel to bear on people who have no category for what it means to be right with God, or even that you should even think about being right with God to begin with, which is a foreign concept now, as it is. So so the fact that Jesus did his ministry there, the fact that sovereignly God put him there, and look, verse 16, the people who what? Live in darkness. This, is a, this was a dark area. I mean, they didn't push out the Gentiles to begin with. There's no gospel there. There's no, there's, no, you know, there, there's no significant presence of lightness there. They have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It started there. It didn't come from outside of the darkness and put itself in. It started there. That's where Jesus' ministry began. A light dawned there. It, it reinforces for us as a church to be a presence in the lives of people so that we can dawn light, the dawn light of the gospel in their lives. So that's where Jesus did his ministry, and I think that's the implication. But how did he go about doing this? What does ministry look like for Jesus? So in verses 17 and 23, Matthew tells us what Jesus did in these uh, early months and uh, maybe even longer in his ministry. Verse 23 is more specific. So look at verse 23. Jesus says... Uh, Matthew says that Jesus began to go all over Galilee, the circuit, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So there's a a synopsis of the rest of Matthew, right? So we're going to drink from Matthew's fire hose all year when it comes from the preaching and the teaching and the healing and seeing all that in action, right? You're probably going to be sick of Matthew before I'm halfway done with it. I, that's not a testimony to your heart. That's just, there's just a lot of Matthew. I told, I went to visit, when we were in Florida, I had dinner with a, with a pastor friend. And he said, so what are you preaching on Sunday? I said, oh, I'm going to Matthew 4 and we're going to talk about this. He's like, you're going through Matthew? And I said, he goes, I said yeah. And he goes, do you know how long it is? <laughs> right? You're going to be wearing your people out. So you may, there's just going to be a ton for us, opportunity for us. Uh, to understand what it means for Jesus to be preaching and teaching and healing. We're going to cover it time and time again. So I'm going to lay that full explanation of that verse aside. But I do want to take us to verses 18 through 22 because this gets into um, the nitty-gritty of how Jesus practically went about executing his ministry, and it's through discipleship. Look at verses 18 through 22. 
As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So if Jesus was doing his ministry in Galilee, and it was a preaching ministry and a teaching ministry and a healing ministry, how did that actually work, right? One of the quotes that we use in my corporate job all the time is, all great ideas degenerate into work. Somebody's got to actually get this done. And so that's, that's, that's what this verse, that's what this passage of Scripture is telling us. A very important part of Jesus' methodology was to call individual disciples that he would teach and that they in turn would then teach and preach. It's a multiplication strategy. And the word that Matthew uses to explain what that relationship looked like here in the text is follow. Follow me. Now this is a little bit unusual because it's significantly unusual because typically in a Jewish context there would be all these rabbis out there and if you wanted to, you as an individual would spend some time with each of the individual rabbis and you would decide who you wanted to follow based on their winning you over or your feel. It's like a college tour honestly is what it was like. And here in this scenario Jesus is the rabbi and he's the one doing the choosing. He's the one doing the calling. And this phrase, follow me, occurs multiple times in all the Gospels, about 13 actually. And there are all kinds of references if you tease out and interpret this word all through the, um, all through the New Testament. But I want us to understand what it means to follow. What was Jesus asking of these men? What is he asking of us? What are we asking of the world when we tell them about Jesus? And I want to give you just five words really quickly for what they are. The first thing we're talking about here is obedience. Ouch. Obedience. James Montgomery Boy says, Without obedience, there is no genuine Christianity. No genuine Christianity. Those who are truly Jesus' sheep, taking it over to the Gospel of John, hear Jesus' voice, they obey Jesus' voice from the beginning, and they enter into a life in which the chief characteristic, the chief quality is that of obedience. It's related to the second word, repentance. Repentance. When Jesus called uh, Matthew... Uh, he called one who knew he was a sinner. Um, he, he knew this. Um, so if, if you go to Matthew 9.13, you'll see that, that Jesus emphasizes this word of re- repentance. But, but the need for repentance is no less evident in the calls of the other disciples. So if you go to Matthew and, and Mark and you look at the calling of the disciples um, and you see, um, you'll see this word repent in Matthew 4, you'll see it again and again and again. Um, and this is consistent with, with obedience. So I want you to think about what this word means, repentance. What it means is to, is to turn away and stop, and stop doing this and start doing that. 
to turn away from this, which is, which is sin and disobedience, and start doing this over there. And this was an important part of what it meant to be a disciple. Now, for, 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 for James and, and John and Peter and Andrew, immediately it was, I'm going to not only leave behind a certain lifestyle, I'm not only going to leave behind family, I'm not only going to leave behind what I know, I'm actually going to, in that, it began to, as they began to follow Jesus, it began to be less about what the practical things they left behind, it began to be about their life. The, the sin that they had to turn from in order to follow Jesus. And that's what we're asking when we bring the gospel to bear with people in the world. If Jesus is who he is, there can be no alternative other than obedience and repentance. If Jesus is the holy, sinless Son of God, um, if he's the one who's never taken one step in any direction of sin, if he's the one who's never had a sinful thought, anybody who's going to follow him, by definition, has to turn their back from the same things and face him toward righteousness. That's what it means to be a follower, okay? Obedience and repentance. Now, we sin, of course we do, and we're going to confess that as we do every Sunday morning here. We do it on a regular basis in our personal lives, and we're restored back into fellowship with him. But if you think you can be a Christian and be indifferent to him or his teaching, that's not following. It's not following. Which is why submission is another trait that comes about. Following Jesus involves submission. Um, you'll see in Matthew, Jesus will talk about submission. He'll, 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 it's like putting on a yoke on an animal. It's an easy yoke compared to the yoke of legalism. But it's, but it's a yoke nonetheless. And a yoke submits. We submit to a yoke. It's a picture of an animal yoked to others as well as to farm implement for a labor. Um, in the English word, submit, you know what it means? It's, for, it's Latin, and it means under. Sub means under, and mittens, mito, means to put or to place. It means to place yourself underneath the authority of another person. Again, this is why we repent, and this is why we obey, is because we sit underneath the authority of someone. You cannot be a Christian libertarian. There, there is no uh, whatever you think goes in the following of Jesus. There is only submission, obedience, and repentance when there's not. This is what it means to follow. It means to trust. This one's a little bit easier to talk about because we always find ourselves in places where we need somebody to, to trust. It is impossible to follow Jesus without trust. A lack of trust will cause you to deviate from the following. Trust is like the is really the, the root of the of the submission and the and the repentance and the and the obedience um, to genuinely trust Christ and to follow Him. It's a personal. It's when a um, a failure to follow Jesus means a person is committed to some other goal or you're trusting some other thing. Ultimately, it comes down to that. it's a great question to ask yourself. Why is this going wrong? What am I trusting other than Jesus in this moment? And then lastly, perseverance. Perseverance. Boy, have we, we seen this in, the, in our Sunday school lesson, following the, 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 Jewish, the, the nation of Israel through the wilderness. Following Jesus is not an isolated act. Following Jesus is not an isolated act. It is... Um, it is a commitment to keep going, following, because Jesus never stops walking, so we're going to keep going. Um, 
I'm, I, I remember as a child, um, when, I was, when I was baptized and became a Christian, maybe, I was 10. I don't, I don't, I don't, I mean, I remember the conversation. I remember being baptized and I'm grateful for my, for my church, but how much did I truly understand the gospel? I just, I'm going to chalk it up to the Lord and say, he knows, and I don't necessarily need to have that point in time. But as you, as I, as I moved in through high school and into college, you know, you begin to have those questions and those conversations in your mind, like, okay, I'm not really following or trusting or persevering or submitting uh, but it's bothering me, which means this is in some sort of form of repentance, and I'm trying to follow Jesus. But did I ever really become a Christian to begin with? And you just kind of wrestle with all of that stuff. And one of the things that pastors would do in those moments, they'd say, well, Rob, you know, when you were baptized, did you get a Bible with your name on it and a date that expl- like, to give you that point of reference in your past? And I would say, you know, no. <laughs> um, I remember being baptized. I remember the, the celebration. I remember all of those things, but I didn't have this this moment, you know, in the, in the back that I could, I didn't have this memoir. And the, the, the trouble with the memoir is that it gives us a, a semblance of, like we put our faith in the fact that we own a memoir. We put our faith in the fact that we have this marker in the back. No, 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 I, the, the memoir is great. It's great. I'm, I'm not, not knocking the memoir. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not knocking the Bible. I'm not knocking the, the experience. That's the pictures. No, no, no. What I'm saying is I don't put my faith in the fact that I had an experience in the past. I put my faith in the fact that Jesus is still walking with me, and I'm just, I'm just got to repent and obey. I'm, I'm going to go forward. Um, and so I'm going to persevere. And it's the fact that I just keep going that gives me hope and confidence that Jesus actually is who he is. Look, do you, those of you who are parents, do you wake up every morning you can't wait to be a parent. It's the happiest moment of your life. It's like Disney or Hawaii or whatever. No, not me. There have been mornings where, where, where the children have come and gotten us up really early, and I just thought, could I just like, could they not need a parent for like one more hour? Is that, is that possible? Like room time for us in the afternoons when, the, when Trey and Jonathan were little was like 2 to 4, lock them down. You do not need a parent from 2 to 4. Why? Because there are, I have feelings and emotions and needs as a person. And I don't need a child in my life right now, even though I got one. But I'm still a parent. They do get to come out of their room at 4 o'clock. I can, even though I don't feel like going as a parent, I keep going. And the fact that I keep going is the proof and evidence that I actually do want to keep going, that I really am a parent, right? And that's what perseverance is. Perseverance is the proof. Even if you don't feel like it, you're still a Christian because you're still going. You're still here. You're still in the faith. And you give God all the glory for for keeping you. David, in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my heart path. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. We're on a journey. We're trusting. We're submitting. We're repenting. We're obeying. And we're going to keep going. It's a path. A true disciple is someone who follows Jesus all the way to the end. The book that John Bunyan wrote was called Pilgrim's Progress, not Pilgrim's Experience when he was a child. Right? Keep going. So I take this list, and and this list comes out of Matthew. We're going to see all of this. It's a plumb line. 
It's a checklist for our own accountability. Am I trusting? Am I submitting under the authority of Jesus? Do I believe that he actually loves and cares for me and is taking care of my sin and therefore I can trust him to take care of everything else in my life? Am I just going to keep going even if I don't feel like it? So it serves, for those of you who are Christians, it serves as a plumb line to say, is this Am I, in, am I still in the faith? Am I actually believing and following Jesus? But for those of you who are not Christians, this clearly defines the terms of the relationship. You need to know that to become a Christian is not a relationship in which you get to use Jesus like you see fit. It is a relationship of love and grace and mercy and submission and obedience and repentance and perseverance and trust in the one who could never love you better than he loves you better than anybody else ever could knows you better than because he made you and so it's a joyful submission it's a joyful repentance it's a joyful obedience it's a joyful submission and even when it's hard there's a joyful joyful perseverance but he's the one who sets all the terms you're going to know him the way he demands and has made it possible for you to know him What does that mean? Well, here's what I mean. I mean, you don't have to be good enough to get on Jesus' bandwagon. In fact, you couldn't if you tried. And you, there's, there's nothing you could have ever done in the past that would, that would, that would preclude you from, exclude you from being a part of Jesus' bandwagon. Because it's not based on how bad you've been or how good you are. It is based on how He is. And he lived the life you could not live. And he paid the price for the sin that you have committed. And he did so that you can be in a relationship with him and the Father forever. It's based on grace. It's based on grace. And you're going to see that as we go all the way through Matthew. Again and again and again. So Jesus did his ministry with people who weren't like him. Yes, he was in the synagogues just teaching. And in fact, actually, you know, if you keep reading Matthew, you're going to see it's the Jewish people who really didn't want a lot to do with Jesus. But the Gentiles loved him and responded, and they followed him. And, and Jesus did it through discipleship. And so for us as a church, it says, are we invested in the, are our lives invested in a culture that's different from our own that we might necessarily prefer to be around? Let's don't be birds of feather, but let's do it. Let's do it with discipleship. Let's do it by multiplying ourselves and teaching the life of Jesus in the lives of others, which we do in Sunday school, which we do in the groups, and we do in the classes down here with the kids. We're doing it, gang. We're doing it. Let's keep doing it. Let's bring people to the gospel, to Jesus, through the same methods and the same means that he used. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word, and I hope and pray that as we dive into Matthew's gospel, now having summarized the abstract, that we would, um, we would be compelled to, to go, that we'd be compelled to live a life with people who maybe don't think like us or act like us, and that we would make disciples with them, teaching them to obey all that you have commanded, teaching them to obey all that you have commanded. Congregation, we're going to to, um, respond in song and then we'll move toward uh, communion together. Uh, Lord, we we are grateful to share in uh, the, the act of communion today.
um, to reflect on the broken body and the poured out blood of your son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for many. And we worship you that way uh, because of it. We, re- we obey by remembering. Thank you for the opportunity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.